Please find with me in your copy of God's Word, Ephesians chapter 4. If you're using a Bible supplied on the cart in the back of the room, you'll find this on page 977. We'll be reading together verses 1 through 16 of Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. I don't care. If you um, wonder what's going on up here, no, I did not uh, nick myself shaving. That didn't help much, did it? (laughs) Actually, I had a a tiny little mole removed because I feel called to maintain my cosmetic handsomeness. And um, a little mole like that is a serious blemish to a guy like me. Actually, it's uh, hilarious. You know, the older I get and uh, look into the mirror, <laughs> the the scarier it gets. It's really, it's really pretty ridiculous. But that's the way we all have to go. So I'm happy with that. 
If an angel from heaven came into our worship center and stood here and I stepped aside so that he could speak to us and he asked this question, will the ministers of Heritage Baptist Church please stand up? What would happen? Better yet, what should happen? On the basis of the passage that I want to open up this morning, I'm going to suggest to you that every single one of you who are born again, who are genuinely converted and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ to pay for your sins and to make you righteous, should stand up. The whole congregation, if we're all born again, all redeemed, should stand up. Because the passage that Jason just read for us and that I want to open up this morning teaches very clearly, indisputably, unarguably that every member of every true church who is born again is a minister. That's what we're going to see. And so the whole congregation should stand up. As I read in one of the commentaries this week, it was an occasion when John Stott was visiting a church in Connecticut. And on the bulletin, it was an Episcopal church, it named who the rector was and who the associate and assistant rector were. And then it said, ministers, the entire congregation. And he was very blessed by that biblical understanding. And I want us to be blessed by it. So we're going to look at this passage this morning for uh, several minutes together. Now, it is, a, it is a challenging passage in a sense, particularly from the standpoint of trying to present a structure and a homiletic. And I've decided upon an approach that I think at the end of the day will be helpful. If you will notice, verse 11 doesn't end until we get all the way down to verse 14. It's long. Just listen to the sort of the complexity of this for a minute, how it seems to us from a grammatical standpoint that it's a run-on sentence. It just keeps going, but everything is great. Everything is good. Everything is helpful. Everything is enlarging our understanding, but from the standpoint of trying to outline it and to present a structure, very challenging. It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, period. Just go ahead and outline that for me later, and then I'll try to preach this again. But it's challenging, believe me. What I've determined rather to do is to ask and answer a series of questions that I think will, in effect, open up the meaning of the passage. The Apostle Paul is concerned about unity among God's people, but he's also anxious for us to understand diversity, and especially Diversity of gifts and service to the church. 
We were told in verse 8 that when Christ ascended on high, even though this comes out of Psalm 68, it's messianic, it refers to the ultimate triumph of our Savior over sin and wickedness and principalities and powers. And as a triumphant conqueror, he gave gifts, sort of like a great king coming home from a victory, riding in the front chariot, having the chariot filled with spoils from the kingdom that was conquered and throwing the gifts out to the people along the sidelines that were rejoicing and celebrating over the great victory. And among the gifts that Christ has given to the church are mentioned these, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then notice the last one there in verse 11 is the pastors and teachers. It starts with the definite article, the, and pastors and teachers go together here. Almost all agree with that. Every true pastor must be a teacher. He has to be apt to teach. Not every teacher is a pastor, but every pastor is a teacher. So pastor-teacher is a nice way to think about this office. Today, I'm going to refer to it simply as pastor. But understand that the pastor is a teacher. Why did he give pastor-teachers? Why did he give apostles and prophets and evangelists? For the same reason, but I'm focusing this morning on why he gave pastors. Verse 11 says, and he gave, and at the end of it is pastors and teachers, and verse 12 answers my question. So the first question is, what is the primary responsibility of a pastor? The primary, not the exclusive, the primary responsibility of a pastor. The answer is found in the beginning of verse 12. He gave pastors and teachers to equip the saints for works of ministry. To equip the saints for works of ministry. One translation puts it like this, for the training of the saints in the work of ministry. That's the Holman Christian Standard Bible. The NIV puts it this way, to equip his people for works of service. The New American Standard says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. And the message, which can be sometimes helpful, says to train Christ's followers in skilled servant work. To train Christ's followers, that would be the saints, in skilled service work. Now, the King James translation is not particularly helpful here because if you happen to have one with you, you will notice that there are inserted some commas, and I would suggest that they're inserted in the wrong place and they leave the wrong meaning because where they're inserted leads you to believe that pastors and teachers were given for three things. One, to equip the saints. Two, for the work of ministry. And three, for the building up of the body. But that is not what the text is teaching. The text is rather teaching that Christ gave pastor-teachers to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for equipping the saints for the work of ministry so that the body will be built up, the body of Christ. So that's really the answer to the question. What is the primary responsibility of pastors? To equip 
the saints for the work of ministry. I hope you'll think of the four of us in that way. It isn't the only thing we do. But it is the primary thing we do, and I'm doing it now. I'm trying to equip you for the work of ministry by helping you understand that you are to be equipped for the work of ministry. And it is my unique and my fellow pastor's unique responsibility to help equip you for the work of ministry. The second question is, what is the purpose for saints ministering? I think you can answer that question. Look at verse 12. What is the purpose for which we equip you to minister? So you're saying, okay, I'm getting it. You're supposed to equip me for ministry. Why do I need to be equipped for ministry? What, what will I do having been equipped for the ministry? Here's what you'll do, verse 12. You will be using your equipment, your equipping for building up the body of Christ. You will be building up the body of Christ. Not me, not Jonathan, not Mark, not Keith. You, pastors and teachers given to the church for the equipping of the saints for ministry so that they can build up the body of Christ. So just a simple review at this point would be pastors equip, saints ministers, minister. Pastors equip, saints minister. Is that hard? Pastors equip, saints ministers. Pastors equip, saints to minister. Let's put it together. Pastors equip, saints to minister so that they can build up the body of Christ. There it is. It's, it's all reviewed. It's very simple, isn't it? The third question is, how long should this process continue? How long should it go on? The answer is found at the very beginning of verse 13. Until. Until when? Well, let me just put it like this. Until everyone attains unity, unity of faith and knowledge, and maturity. So just real simply, this is something that I must continue to do, my fellows must continue to do in your lives so that you can continue to uh, build up the body of Christ until, until, this will go on, until every member of Heritage Baptist Church or whatever church you may someday be a part of, I hope it remains this one, until everyone who's a part of that church comes to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and to maturity. Those are the two ends that you should have in mind as you roll up your sleeves and help build up this body of Christ. You should be going for this. You know, I want to make a con- You should say this. I want to make a contribution to the unity of the faith of Heritage Baptist Church. And by the faith, I'm thinking especially of that body of truth which we believe. We do have some differences of opinion. That's understandable, and some may remain. But the goal is to come, if at all possible, to oneness of mind and oneness of thinking. Because if we really feel strongly different about certain issues, it could cause division. We want to be unified in what we believe. God didn't mean it to mean several things that are contradictory to one another. The Bible must not be interpreted that way. It has a meaning. 
And it isn't just the pastor's responsibility to help this congregation move toward unity, the unity of the faith, and to the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. But you notice it's also to help the church come to maturity. You see that especially in verse 13 again. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. To mature manhood. So this process, folks, guess what? So if I said to you, well, then how long do you think it will really take, Pastor Ted? How long will it take for all of us to come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, that sounds possibly achievable, this side of the second coming, only possibly. But then he adds to this maturity, mature manhood. Um, how, by what measurement uh, should we conclude that we've arrived at mature manhood? Well, listen to the rest of it, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, to the, me- to the measurement of of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Do you think any of us are ever going to attain complete conformity to the moral holiness and purity of our Lord Jesus Christ this side of heaven? No, but we want to. We want to get his, we want to like one of the old Puritans said, Lord, make me as holy as a saint can be this side of death, this side of your second coming. We strive for it. We want that. We long for it. It's our ideal. But my point is, uh, you know, half of the pleasure is just in the journey. It's not just the destination. My point is, folks, what Paul is telling us Heritage Baptist Church needs to be about is something that will never come to an end. That's my point. Pastors and teachers equip the saints for the work of ministry so that they can build up the body of Christ until we all come to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God and to mature manhood measured by the stature of the fullness of Christ. So there's the answer to how long it's going to take. I've already commented on unity with regard to what it is to faith and knowledge. I've already commented on maturity with regard to what it is complete Christ-likeness. So that would have been questions four and five. I skipped to six. What will this maturity result in? So everybody with me? Building up the body of Christ, striving toward unity, Striving toward maturity, if we achieve by degrees this maturity, what will it result in? The answer is found in verse 14. So that, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. It wasn't long ago, in fact, only a few weeks ago in Second Peter, we were, we were confronted with the same thing. God cares about false prophets. God cares about the truth. God cares about his people not embracing error. God doesn't want his people to be like children, immature, infantile, 
tossed around by every wind of doctrine. He wants us to be solid. He wants us to be stable. That's what results in maturity. Doctrinal stability. How else, this is question seven, how else will this maturity manifest itself? What will take the place of instability? That would be a different way of putting it. So that we will no longer be tossed about that instability. What will take the place of instability? And the answer is found in verse 15a. Rather, see the contrast? Rather, don't be like children tossed about. Don't be unstable in your Christian life. Here's what I want. Rather, so mature that you will be able, by the grace of God, to speak the truth in love to one another. Now, I'm not sure how mature Heritage Baptist Church is in that regard. It takes a lot of maturity just for a pastor to speak the truth in love (laughs) to the sheep. And we can sympathize with how much maturity and courage it takes for the sheep to speak the truth to one another in love. Very important. You know, there are always the two extremes. Some people just speak in love all the time, but they don't really speak the truth. And some people speak the truth like a bull in a china shop and there's no love. We're to speak the truth in love. When is the last time any of you had that calling of actually having to go to a brother or sister and lovingly, humbly, after much prayer, say, brother, bro, I have got to tell you something. I've got to speak the truth to you. I hope I'm doing it in love. I think I am. I do love you. But listen, brother, sister... Is that a part of your Christian life? Now, let me ask you this question. You don't have to be a seminary student to answer it. Do you sort of get the idea from Ephesians 4, where Paul is writing to a church of believers, that that's something you're supposed to be able to do and something you're actually supposed to do, actually do? Or is this for pastors? No. Speaking the truth in love to one another. That's the alternative to instability. That's what maturity looks like in a church that is well-grounded and well-taught, where the pastors are equipping the saints. So, you know, it wouldn't hurt for you just to quickly insert a little prayer. Lord, bring me to that place. Bring me to that place. You know how how much of a coward I am. You know how I don't even know much of the truth, let alone have the strength to speak it to someone else in love. Help me, God. I want to be a sanctifying influence in this body. I want to be a, one of those pieces of iron that sharpens other iron in this assembly. Lord, help me. I need to grow in that area. Isn't that a good prayer? That took me about 15 seconds to give you an idea of what you could pray. So that's how else maturity will manifest itself. Now, I have another question. Well, let me just say a little more about this before I go to my ninth question. You see, if we speak the truth in love to one another, you see what happens in the rest of verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Grow up! We sometimes say that. Would you just grow up? God is saying to us in a much 
more gracious and tender way. I want you as my children and as my disciples and as members of the local church to grow upward. I want you to mature. And speaking the truth in love to one another will help you do that. I want to just quickly take an excursion for a moment, and then we'll come right back. I want you to go with me to Romans 15, and notice just verse 14. This is the passage uh, translated somewhat differently, which gave birth to the sort of well-known book. Now it's been around for several decades, written by Dr. J. Adams, sort of the pioneer of biblical counseling. Romans 15, 14, he's coming to the end of his letter and he wants to compliment the church. He wants to compliment the saints. He wants to encourage them by telling them something that he was very convinced of concerning them. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, by the way, that you yourselves are full of goodness. That's critical. Don't be doing this business if you're not full of goodness. Filled with all knowledge, all not meaning absolute, but mean mature and broad and comprehensive. And able to instruct one another. Now, wait a minute. Isn't he talking about the pastors there? Well, go back to the beginning of verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. I think I told you a week or two ago, almost in every place in where you find my brothers, when this was originally written, the Greek always carried the connotation of sisters as well, unless it was talking very specifically about a male person. So this is for you ladies. No, he's talking to God's people. He says, I just want to commend you. I find great satisfaction when I reflect upon the church in Rome in realizing that the brothers and the sisters there are filled with goodness and full of all knowledge, and out of that are able to counsel one another, competent to exhort one another, to instruct one another. This is one of those one another's. We, we've got to get more and more concerned as a church about the one another's. There are at least 27 of them. And we keep saying to you that you can't do most of the one another's out there or in here or in the parking lot. Most of them require getting to know each other and growing in your love for each other. And that's one of the reasons for community groups. Some of us are really experiencing that. You can see it. There is a new openness. Now, obviously, you don't spill all your guts in a community group. But what comes out of the development of love and confidence in relationship are what we call spin-off relationships, where the guy says, Hey, Bill, could, we meet with, could I meet with you? I, I want to have lunch with you. I see some stuff in your life that I think is going to help me. i got to tell you some stuff. I need accountability. I need you to be praying for me. Brother, could we meet? Or you can imagine a scenario the same with a dear sister in Christ. This is what maturity looks like. This is what we need to strive for. This is what Heritage Baptist Church needs to become more like. 
We want an Apostle Paul to be able to write heritage and say, I'm really satisfied with what's happening there. It's a maturation process that's enabling you to speak the truth in love to one another. And it's a beautiful thing. Then just one other passage very quickly. Go to Hebrews 10. This is familiar as well. But there's something there that I love in verse 25. It comes on the heels of um, what we are to do in one another's lives. In fact, I probably should read verse 24. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another. There's another one another. Here's a challenge. For the rest of this year, go through the entire New Testament and find every one another. And if you are good with your computer and the Internet, you can get an answer to that really fast. As I remember asking Jonathan to do that for him, give me a whole list of every one another. There's like 151 another's, but most of them don't have to do with ministering in each other's lives. And while they were talking to one another and so forth. So we're not talking about that, but find the one another's. And here's one that says, you and I are actually supposed to sit down and think for a while. I guess I'll grab a chair and just, um, maybe you're at your dinner table. And you're just uh, sitting there with your Bible and you're taking a little time and you just say, Lord, I need to consider who in our church that I could stir up to love and good deeds. I know I'll get the church directory out. I think I could talk to her. I think I could talk to him. I think I could... This isn't a rebuke. This isn't an admonition, is it? I'm not asking you now. The apostle or the writer to the Hebrews isn't asking you to go to rebuke someone. He's saying, would you just take some time to think? Could you just consider? Could you get outside of yourself long enough to think who you might be able to stir up to love and good deeds? And then figure out how you're going to do it? And then go about doing it? You don't have to fear anything. (laughs) Because they're going to appreciate it. You're not rebuking them for sin. But look what he goes on to say. He goes on to say in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. And please, dear brothers and sisters, don't think this is just about church. This is not just about church. This is not just about church. Go back to Acts 2 and see what the early church did. Yes, they gathered in the temple in a corporate gathering when they could. But there were so many of them that they had to meet in homes and they met daily in homes. We can't do that, perhaps. They met together. They ate together. They laughed together. They cried together. They prayed together. They shared with one another. And so the writer says, don't quit getting together. I'm going to promise you something. Some of you still don't think community groups are that valuable. You don't have an adequate understanding of God's design for community. I'm just going to say that straight up. God is the author and inventor of community. God wants us to get together and to know each other and pray for each other and, and sing together and, and exhort one another and help each other. When... We went through this book not so long ago called Total Church, and I strongly recommend that you read Total Church. 
There are things in it that we would say, mm, I don't think so. I, I, think, I don't think the ecclesiology is really quite that sound there. Okay, don't we have to do that with everything? We glean, we're gleaners. But the strong emphasis in this book is about God's people coming together in community and doing the one another's with a view to their growth and grace and their evangelistic enterprises. And there's a chapter that starts this way. This is one of those what happens next situations. Sarah struggled to explain the problem to Ian and Jane. She was certain they ought to know, but wasn't sure how to proceed. The silence began to feel a little awkward. So she gulped. By the way, she's talking to her pastor and his wife. Took a deep breath and began to tell her story. Jane looked at Ian, her husband, with one of those concerned but caring glances. Ian suddenly realized how much he didn't know. With only a few years of pastoral ministry behind him, this seemed way out of his league. Sarah told them she was a habitual self-harmer. And although she was in her mid-twenties, it was an established pattern. She showed them some of her scars on her arms. Jane visibly winced at the sight of them. Where on earth should they start? What could they possibly say? If he was honest, Ian's biggest problem was comprehension. He couldn't even begin to understand why she would do such a thing. He felt simultaneously repulsed by the protective, uh, by, by and protective towards Sarah. He felt repulsed and wanted to protect her. And that ambiguity troubled him. Jane went over and put her arm around the troubled young woman sitting in their front room, and Ian began to pray quietly. And it goes on to say that he quickly considered his alternatives and wanted to say, Sarah, this is a very serious problem, and we love you, and I want to pray for you. But, you know, this is out of my league. You need to go see a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a doctor. And while he believed she did need that, he realized, no. God's word, God's grace, God's power, God's love, the atonement of Jesus Christ, and the love of the brethren could speak overwhelming healing into this woman's life. And the chapter goes on to tell how their little community group began to love her and talk to her about how God had created her and how there was dignity in her personhood and how God's grace was sufficient to help her with any depression that she might have. And it ends up making community Biblical community appeared to be very beautiful and very attractive. And I want to say to you folks, some of you still don't see the value of it, and you're just kind of copping out on it. And I want, I want to ask you to think how biblical it is. And I want you to really think if you think this does it adequately right here. This is really enough. This is foundational. This is fundamental. There's nothing more important than this. This is where pastors equip the saints. Don't misunderstand me. Is this enough? The answer is no. It is not enough. 
And that's why your pastors are trying to build some structures into the life and ministry of this church that will help address that inward need, upward to God, inward to one another, outward to the world. Worship, community, mission. That's what Ephesians 4 is about. That's what Ephesians 4 is about. So, who or what builds up the body of Christ? Well, the who we already saw. Go back for just a second to 12a. Ephesians 4, 12a. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Who builds up the body of Christ? The saints. The saints. The saints. That's what it said. That's what it says. So who builds up the body of Christ? The saints. But could I use the impersonal pronoun, what builds up the body of Christ? Listen to the answer. The body builds up the body of Christ. What? Yes. Look at verse 16. Look at the end of verse 16. It says, when each part, and that's you, and that's me. By the way, the pastors who equip the saints are also a part of the body, and they need the same thing going on in their lives. When each part, you're a part of the body. You know, Paul's using the analogy of the human body and the various organs. You know, your kidneys are part of your body. Your gallbladder's a part of your body. Your heart's a part of your body. Your brain's a part of your body. Your lungs are a part of your body. When each part of the body, each part is working properly, that's what we want for all of you. I want you to ask yourself the question, have I been working properly in the body, in the body, in the body? Am I working properly in the body? Am I using my gifts that God has given me and my calling in the body? When each part is working properly, what happens? Look at the last 11 or so words. Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It builds itself up in love. What is the it? The body. The body builds the body. You are the body. And you are to help build the body. So that's what builds up the body. The body. The saints. The who is the saints. The what is the body. And they're one and the same thing. So, that's what this passage is about. Now, if you're keeping notes, I think that came up to nine, and I told you ten. I was wrong. It was nine. Isn't that encouraging? The sermon's already shorter than you thought it's going to be. Now, let me review and summarize what Paul is teaching us here in these few verses. Pastors equip saints to minister. Saints minister in order to build up the body. This process continues until we are made perfect. That is, till the end of time. This maturation results in doctrinal stability and the ability to speak the truth and love to one another. And when people speak the truth and love to one another, it causes the body to grow. And when each member of the body of Christ works properly, the body builds up the body. That's a summary. Now, what this passage does not make clear, and I have to be very honest about this, I don't, 
shouldn't really require honesty. It's simply a matter of discovery, isn't it? I think you perhaps have come to this conclusion. What this passage does not make clear to us is exactly how the saints minister to one another. The one hint we got at it this morning was by speaking the truth in love to one another. It's true. That is one of the ways, and that is a very primary way, and that's a very significant way, but it isn't the only way. So we have to be honest. This passage doesn't open it all up. That isn't the design of this passage. Putting it differently, this passage doesn't make clear to us exactly what the gifts are that each of us possess and are to exercise with a view to making a unique contribution to the building up of the body of Christ. Are the gifts listed there? No, the only gifts that are listed there are the gifts of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. By the way, there are five passages in the New Testament that speak about gifts. And when you put them all together, you come up with about 20, 20 different gifts that God's people have. But you know what? It's like all those lists in the Bible. It's not meant to be exhaustive. It's just meant to be suggestive. There may be a hundred different gifts. There may be 500 different gifts. So this passage doesn't identify the gifts, but what this passage does is tell me that I have to have a part in it and that I do have a gift. The fact that we have gifts is clear from verse 7. Jason read it to us, but grace was given to each one of us. And Paul includes himself. And this is the epistle of Paul to the church in Owensboro. Grace has been given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ. He's sovereign. We all don't get the same gift, and we don't all get the same amount of the same gift. But we all have a gift. Because notice, according to the measure of Christ's gift. And by the way, don't conclude that you only have one gift. You may have ten gifts. You may have three gifts. You may only have one. I can promise you have one. There's not a Christian on the face of the earth that has no gifts. Period. But you may have more than one gift. And in the very near future, we're going to be giving you some help in discovering your gifts. It will be an assessment. It will be an inventory, inventory, a gift inventory tool. And by the way, this is the first of only three on the gifts. I'm emphasizing that the gifts are from God. And Pastor Jonathan will come next week, and Pastor Mark will come the next week, and they're going to expand the theology of gifts. But the thing that you must take away, dear people, from this sermon, or I have failed, you must take this away, that you are a part of a body, and that you are supposed to be equipped by us to minister. To minister. To minister. It means serve. It's it's the Greek word diakoneus. It's the same word used for the office of deacon. In one sense, we're all deacons, small d. Some are called to lead the rest of the deacons, big d. But the ultimate deacon, all capitals, is Jesus Christ. He said himself, think not that I came to be deaconed. That's the word in Matthew 20, 28. That's the word in Mark 10, 45. I didn't come to be deaconed. I came to deacon. That's exactly what it says in the text. And last Sunday evening, Pastor Keith, in his 
own inimitable way, put before us the memory of Jesus Christ down on his knees. If you didn't see it, he was down on his knees for the longest time, portraying a Savior who came to serve and to wash dirty, stinking, smelly feet. And all of us believe that we're supposed to be Christ-like. And the fundamental thing about our Savior is he came to serve, serve, serve. So do you think he would be happy for us to try to imitate him in that regard? I mean, that's a ludicrous question. He's called us to serve. And that's why we cannot be consumeristic. You hear that word thrown about here? It's not said in, in anger or in a harsh way. It's said in a loving but faithful way. Too many people pick a church on the basis of how it will serve them. This church, that church serves me better. And it's all about me. And what we want to create and cultivate in this congregation is a not me being served, but me serving. Now, we hope that, that people will be served. I'm not going to deny that. When we serve, we serve with a view to people being served. But if you choose a church based on which one will service you the best, as opposed to how you might roll up your sleeves and help us, and I have to say it again, <coughs> never, never, Never has there been a time in the history of Heritage Baptist Church when we more needed people to stay with us, roll up their sleeves, and serve. Never. And we need you to just say, hey, I want to be a part of the solution. I do see the problems. And thank God our pastors are humble enough to see deficiencies and weakness and humble enough to try to address them. But I want to be a part of the solution. I want to serve. I want that inventory. I want that assessment tool, Pastor. Hurry up, Jonathan, and preach that sermon. Hurry up, Pastor Mark, and preach that sermon because I want to do some stuff. What do you want to do? I want to build up the body. That's what I want to do. I want to build up the body so that it'll be more mature, so that it'll be more united, so it'll be more stable, so it'll be more Christ-like. I want to be sure my part is working properly. That's our, that's our longing. That's our desire for this church. So I conclude. Pastors equip... Saints minister, equipping is our immediate task. Edifying and building up the body is your ultimate calling. You hear that? The immediate task is for us to equip. equip. The ultimate task is for you, for you to build up the body. And so it's roll up your sleeves time around here. It's get on your knees time around here. It's get a basin and towel time around here. We are soon, in fact, tonight going to be <clears throat> unveiling to you our vision and our plan and our structure for this church becoming a more three-dimensional church. We're not done working on the upward. 
But we must also work on the inward and the outward. And there are going to be ministries that desperately need humble, Christ-like brothers and sisters who will take up a basin and a towel and say, I'm about serving because I've been served. The sad model for most churches is like a, like a pyramid. Pastor's the big dog at the top, and everybody goes down in, in relative importance until you get to the bottom. And that's so totally wrong. We're only at the top in the sense that we equip. We, too, have to get down on our knees. We want Heritage Baptist Church to become an every-member minister church. Did you hear that? We want Heritage Baptist Church to become an every-member minister church so that if an angel ever does come in here and say, who are the ministers here? Stand up. Everyone stands up. That's what we want. Now, are we going to have that 100%? No, probably not. But we'll have a lot more of it if we strive toward it than if we don't. Christ came to redeem a serving people. And for those of you who don't know the gospel, could I just say this before I close in prayer? Jesus came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves unless we just went to hell. He came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. That is to pay for our own sins. We can do that. You can pay for your own sins if you go to hell. But you'll never get done paying. He who was equal to God, relinquished all of the glory of heaven and came down and was born a man and humbled himself and became obedient unto death, the ignominious death of the cross. He became a curse for us. He came to serve before he went back to reign. And he wants us to be like him, but you can't be like him unless you first come to him as the only one who can pay for your sins. He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. And if you look outside of yourself and take the advice of John the Baptist and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you'll be saved. And then you'll want to be like him. And being like him, in part, means giving your life to serve the body of Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, give us grace to, first of all, even more clearly understand Ephesians 4. We, as so often is the case, have only scratched the surface, but we believe this has been a faithful, true, accurate effort at explaining what you have called saints to be and do. And we pray that you will help the members of Heritage Baptist Church to take up their calling. Help us as pastors to more effectively equip them for the work of ministry. And as we do so, may they more effectively contribute their gift to the building up of the body of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.